Welcome to Trinity. We're a church family learning how to follow Jesus in the city of Nottingham. Our vision is to see the church on fire and the city alive. It's so nice to have Pete here because he laughs like really loud. He really does. He's the most encouraging. Pete is the most encouraging uh, witness. And I would just say, I'm just going to introduce Pete in a second. But just as Pete comes to speak to us, please let's lean in. Let's welcome him. Let's give him uh, encouragement as he speaks to us. Uh, Who is Pete? Well, Pete's, uh, Pete's my older, only very slightly, and certainly more handsome cousin. Our father is identical twins, and uh, Pete's been in my life, obviously being older, uh, since right at the beginning, and has formed, it has become, has always been, but has certainly become in the last sort of 15 years or so, one of my, oh dear. (laughs) (laughs) One of my closest, closest friends, he's become a brother to me. Uh, he's been involved in so much of my healing, and, I, and Amy as well. And, you know, we, would just, we just wouldn't be here if it weren't for Pete and B. And I do say that about a few people, but it really is, it really is these guys. Um, let me be specific. When I, I left university in 2000 and something and was in just such a mess, I was so broken, and I was so hurt, and I ended up in London because a mutual friend of ours just said to me on a phone call at Christmas, go to London, Johnny. Within a week, I'd moved to London, but I had nowhere to go. I'd nowhere to live, and these guys just opened up their home, and I stayed on their sofa. I don't know how long, Uh, and they just loved me, nurtured me, cared for me. They invited me into their family, into their church, and that was the beginning of the new season for me, and ever since then, they've just been such a steady and secure part of our lives and our, our ministry and our vision for church is basically stolen from them. <laughs> so church, if you lived in London, if you, if you live in London, this is what you could have had. <laughs> Unfortunately, you don't. You're in Nottingham and so this is what you've got. But can we just welcome uh, Pete as he comes to speak to us this morning. <laughs> oh. What an emotional beginning, um, and the feelings mutual. I, I love these guys. I love this church. Johnny said, we're like brothers. Well, it goes slightly beyond that because we genetically share a dad, identical twins, so we have different mums, but genetically speaking, we share a dad, so we kind of are brothers. Um, it, it is an absolute joy to be here. Like, I love this church. I've not been before on a Sunday, um, but I carry this church in my heart, and it is an absolute privilege and joy to be here. I, I've been giddy all week because I've just been so excited about this visit. Many reasons for my excitement. I'll name a few. Number one, I love this city. So my wife and I, we met in this city. I studied at Nottingham University back in the early noughties, late 90s. Um, And I was studying maths and philosophy, so a nerd. My wife was studying fashion and textiles, so a creative connects with the nerd and sparks began to fly. There there was an obstacle, um, and the obstacle was she was dating someone else at the time. So I I thought, I'm going to do the honourable thing, and I'm going to keep a distance and pray that the relationship falls apart. And... (laughs) 
And it says the Lord answers the prayer of a righteous man in Scripture. And the Lord answered that prayer. It was a messy breakup, but I was there to comfort me in a time of distress. Um, and 20 years later, here we are. We've been married for 19 years. We have three kids, Ben's, Josh, and Olive. Um, and that story began here in Nottingham. So it's always fun to return. Secondly, I'm excited because I, I love this church. Regularly hear stories of what the Lord is doing here. And because I know Johnny and Amy so well, I know that if this church is an extension of their heart, this must be a wonderful, wonderful place to call home. Like their values, their passions, their priorities are the values of the kingdom of God. They are an inspiration. You have phenomenal leaders in Johnny and Amy and the wider team. So being here, being here is a tree. And then the final reason I'm excited to share this message, let the light in. So before I, I launch into the message, can I just sense or, or speak out what I sense the Lord doing in this place? And some of the prophetic words probably pointed to this as well. I had a picture as we were worshipping of David getting the harp and worshipping before God but in front of Saul in a way that brought healing and freedom to Saul when he was tormented. And I sense that the Lord is stirring something in your worship, that one of the manifestations of your worship is already the case. I looked around the room, I could see this was the case, but it will increasingly become the case. One of the manifestations of your worship will be tears. You're going to see more tears, and those tears are going to bring healing. Your worship before the Lord will be um, an instrument of incredible healing, and the Lord is going to draw in the broken to this place. The sound of your worship will draw in the broken, and they will experience healing in this place. Like We know that there's a mental health crisis right now, and yes, we need more therapists and counselors and people with expertise in that area to help people journey through brokenness towards healing but what we most need is an army of worshipers and the in our worship we know the lord inhabits the praises of his people in our worship we encounter his presence and he is the one with power to heal and the lord is going to stir that in this place anyway that's just a word i sent so let the light in i want to speak about practices of undivided devotion now the church my wife and i lead in central london we've got a new building which is incredibly exciting for us it's not as nice as this building um and yet we're still pretty proud of it. Um, and when we took on this building, it basically was a drama school. You can see top left photo, the front of the building um, had been sort of bricked up. Um, behind that front wall is the room top right of the screen, which was a rehearsal studio for the drama students. And as you walked around the building, it was just really dark. There wasn't much light in the space. So the first thing we did is we opened up the windows so that the light could come pouring in. And this is the new front of our building. Can I hear a there we go. Um, and when we launched the space, the architect um, who designed the new space, he basically said to us, look, I knew that the new frontage would transform the space. What I wasn't expecting was it to transform the feeling as you walk down the street. The light pouring in, the light pouring out is beginning to transform the street. This is not a Christian, an architect saying there's something happening as the light pours in and the light pours out. Really exciting for us. We've also taken on another building, an Anglican church a couple of hundred meters away called All Saints. The church community had actually moved out of the space to meet on a local estate and the building had become an escape room. 
um, which basically means you create lots of rooms um, in pitch black darkness, and people come with work colleagues and mates, they go into a room, you lock them in, and you say, all the best, try and get out. And it's like a game. Um, it sounds like hell to me, but people love it and pay good money for it. Um, and as you looked at the building, as you walked past it, it, it felt dark, and then when you went inside, it got even darker. Um, so we took on this space, and we were like, Lord, would you do something? The first thing we did was to open up the windows to let some of the, the light in. Um, and then we began to transform the space, and now it's a co-working space, a space where we can host small businesses and entrepreneurs and people who want to bring kingdom change to this part of London. Now, these are manifestations, signs of what I believe the Lord is doing in the church right now and in our lives. Like, we've been through a pandemic. It was incredibly traumatic. We're in recovery. We're still processing trauma, and we're entering into a new crisis, the cost of living crisis. There's so much going on around us, but the reality, there's also so much going on within us. And I believe the Spirit is doing a work of internal reordering, opening up windows to let light in. Like I've sensed the Lord doing this in my own life. It's felt uncomfortable at times, but I know it's a work of the Spirit. So listen to these words from C.S. Lewis in his epic book, Mere Christianity. It says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently... He starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? Anyone experience this mindset during lockdown or in the last few years? Like, Lord, what are you doing? I feel like I'm falling apart. There's chaos inside. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Like the Lord is doing a work of reordering, ordering chaos, right? These moments of massive transition culturally are opportunities for the Spirit to transform us into a place where his light dwells. He's opening up the windows to let the light in. So I want to ask the question, how do we let the light in? How do we partner with what the Spirit's doing in this time? I love this psalm. Listen to these words, Psalm 24. If you know the story of the Hebridean revival, 1949, this incredible move the Spirit hit the, the islands, the Hebrides. And it began with two older women praying for the, the waters of heaven to flood the islands, right? But one of the key moments, the inbreaking of the move the Spirit, was a prayer meeting where a young lad got on his knees and in a moment of desperation started praying Psalm 24. Like, God, purify us. Give us clean hands and a pure heart. Let's read it. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a 
Good reading. Pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god, they will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. He was reading this psalm. He didn't even get to the climactic moment. Be, list, be lifted up, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory, the Lord strong and mighty? He didn't even get there. He fell face down and started shaking under the power of God. And Duncan Campbell, who was leading the church, overseeing this incredible move move of the Spirit, said that was the moment when the Spirit broke in. When the cry of their hearts was, give us clean hands and a pure heart. What does it mean to have a pure heart? It means to desire one thing. The psalmist says, Lord, give me an undivided heart. Like one thing I ask, one thing I desire that I may dwell in your house, in your presence. Like one thing, that's purity of heart. Jesus put it like this. He said, blessed are the, always going to be pure in heart. And blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. I want you to notice what's going on as Jesus begins to teach about this. He basically says purity of heart, like desiring one thing. You have one priority, which is pursuing the presence of God. When you have purity of heart, it creates clarity of sight. Like when there is purity of heart, there will be clarity of sight. And then listen to what Jesus says a chapter later. He says, the eyes are the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Purity of heart creates clarity of sight. And if you can see clearly, your whole body, your entire body, being will be full of light and you will shine like a star in the, in the universe. In a moment of cultural darkness, you will radiate the goodness and the glory of God. Purity of heart, clarity of sight, and you will shine brightly for the glory of God. So the question then becomes, how do we become pure in Heart. So let's read this together. If you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in Mark 10, or turn your Bibles on, and then scroll to Mark chapter 10. The story of Jesus with a rich young ruler. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. This is the first case of a knee slide in the scriptures. Um, it wasn't in the context of a disco. The guy didn't have a tie around his forehead, but it is the first knee slide we, we see in scripture. Um, Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Eternal life, remember, this isn't life beyond the grave. This is someone noticing abundance all around Jesus, like this fullness of life that starts now, carries on for all eternity. How do I get in on this? This incredible work of the kingdom I want in, how do I get in? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honour mum and dad. Can I hear an amen from the parents? Honour mum and dad. Um, So if you know the story that follows, the guy says, look, I've done all of that. Yes, I've done everything you've mentioned. And Jesus says, oh, that's great, well done. Maybe you need to sell all your possessions, give them to the poor and then come and follow me. And it says, the guy went away sad. He knew he couldn't do that. 
I love this verse from the book of Jonah. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. When, when you cling to an idol, whatever it be, money, sex, power, success, when you cling to idols, you miss out on grace. Like, this guy knew, I can't let go of wealth. It defines me. It brings meaning and comfort to me. It's my highest priority. I can't let go of wealth. And with a clenched fist, you forfeit grace. And he went away sad and missed out on this kingdom movement. I want you to notice something, though, that Jesus only names six of the commandments, which is strange. Was he having an off day? Like if I put you under pressure and said, name the Ten Commandments, like panic, um, murder, adultery, like would you, would you be able to list all ten? Was Jesus like under pressure? I think I can't remember all ten, but here's at least six of them. And you get the drift. Or, or was something bigger going on? And I want to suggest that something bigger was going on. What are the four that Jesus doesn't mention? Well, you're going to see them now on the screen. The first four Jesus doesn't mention. You shall have no other gods, no other idols. Do not misuse the name of the Lord. Remember the Sabbath. The first four commandments are about holiness as it relates to our relationship with God. The second six are about holiness as it relates to loving our neighbor. This guy was smashing it when it came to loving his neighbor. But Jesus omits the first four to make the point, like, God doesn't come first. You're clinging to an idol. You're loving your neighbor, but I'm not sure you're loving the Lord your God with heart, soul, mind, strength. I'm not sure your heart is undivided. It looks pretty divided to me. If you want to be in on what's happening right now, it's purity of heart that creates clarity of sight and then your whole body will be full of light and you will shine like a star in the universe. This is a moment for the church to become undivided in our devotion to Jesus. We'll put it like this, if you want the kingdom, and I think we do, right? Like, we want all of the kingdom. We want the signs and wonders. We want the compassion. We want the healing, the transformation. We want all of the kingdom. If you want the kingdom, it starts with undivided devotion to the king, right? Which means, like the psalmist, Psalm 24, like the the young guy at the beginning of this move, the spirit in the Hebrides is like, Lord, give us clean hands and a pure heart. Like, we, we are so desperate for a move of your spirit. Where there are idols, expose them, flush them from us. We don't want to be clinging to worthless things when you're pouring out grace. So, Lord, would you move, becoming undivided in our devotion to Jesus. So how do we become undivided? And the answer is you have to enter the battleground of spiritual formation. If you really serious about developing an undivided heart, you have to enter the battleground of spiritual formation. Um, Can I break some bad news to you? Um, This is the bad news, that your soul has some enemies, hopefully has some friends, um, but your soul has some enemies. These enemies don't want you to become Christ-like in character. These enemies don't want your soul to come alive in relationship to Jesus. They don't want your soul to be undivided in devotion to the king. And the New Testament language for these three enemies of the soul is the world, the flesh, and the devil. 
the world, the, the systems, the structures, the currents that surround us, the flesh, the disordered desires within us, the desires that we know are destructive, and the devil, the father of lies, constantly whispering lies, has come to rob, kill, and destroy. Your soul has enemies, and we need to wake up to that reality. Now, here's a brilliant book, um, John Mark Comer, Live No Lies. Just put your hand in the air if you've, you've read this book. It's a fantastic, fantastic book. Um, you can see the subtitle, Recognize and Resist the Three Enemies that Sabotage Your Peace. It's about the world, the flesh, and the devil. And he provides a reframing of these three enemies of the soul. He basically says they begin with deceitful ideas. These are the lies of the enemy whispering over you. Deceitful ideas that tap into disordered desires within us that then get normalized in a sinful society. So these three movements, deceitful ideas, tap into disordered desires that get normalized in a sinful society. It creates the darkness that we see all around us. Now, in this book, he tells the story of a fourth century monk with an incredible name, Evagrius Ponticus. And Evagrius Ponticus decided that he wanted to learn how to engage in spiritual warfare. He wanted to learn how to enter this battleground and push back on these three enemies of the soul. So he basically moves into the wilderness, the harsh terrain of the desert, to, to, to basically wrestle with the enemy and fight for light, to enter into all that the Lord had for him. And basically, people started talking about Evagrius. Have you heard of this nutter who's moved into the wilderness because he wants to learn how to engage in spiritual warfare? What a joker. Anyway, news started to spread about this guy, this fourth century monk. And after time, people started realizing that he wasn't spiritually dying in the harsh terrain of the wilderness. He was spiritually coming alive and being purified and was becoming a beacon of light. Anyway, people started making little trips into the wilderness. I want to go and hang out with Evagrius Ponticus and want to get some wisdom how I can push back on some of these temptations that draw me into darkness. Before long, hundreds and thousands of people were making pilgrimages into the wilderness to hang out with Evagrius. Now, towards the end of his life, one of his best mates said, look, you've developed so much wisdom on this journey. Like, you need to write it down. Because when you're gone, people need to know the wisdom that you've developed as you've encountered God in this place. So he wrote a book. Um, the book was entitled Talking Back, A Monastic Guide to Combating Demons. What a title. Who wants to read that book? Come on. Talking Back. Love it. A Monastic Guide to Combating Demons. And in this book, he talks about eight thought patterns that we need to engage um, in warfare with. Now, that framework got refined, and a little bit later, it became known as the seven deadly sins. Like, these are the vices of the, the flesh when our desires become fully disordered, and we just run with that. Envy, like wrath, slothfulness. Greed, gluttony, lust, and pride. 
Now the church began to talk about these seven deadly sins. And if that articulates what the darkness looks like, they're like, we need to articulate what it looks like to live in the light. So they began to name seven virtues, corresponding virtues, kindness, patience, diligence, generosity, self-control, which is basically temperance and chastity and humility. Now the question is, how do we journey from the darkness to the light? We might call this sanctification, becoming Christ-like in character. How do we journey from the darkness to the light? And the language we use for that is deliverance. Now, when we talk about deliverance in the church, some people get like panicked, or like exorcisms and really weird stuff, and maybe. Um, But more often than not, it's people encountering the Spirit who brings freedom and moves them from the darkness into the light. It can happen very quickly. It can happen in the context of worship. It can happen as I'm preaching. It can happen in prayer ministry. And this should be normative amongst the people of God as he opens up the windows and let the light in. So what does this deliverance journey look like? Here's my summary. It looks like blood, sweat, and tears. If we want to engage in stepping into greater measure of freedom, experiencing more of the inbreaking of the light of the kingdom of God, it looks like blood, sweat, and tears, right? So let's start with the blood of Jesus. Then we'll talk about the sweat, the hard work of developing spiritual practices. And then we'll talk about the tears of repentance. So the blood of Jesus that has power to deliver us from darkness. And I want to talk about this by talking about rats. Um, So, I have a phobia of rats. Anyone share a hatred? Not a mild dislike, a hatred of rats. Okay, I I hate rats. And because of that, friends, family members, people like Johnny, would sometimes send me facts about rats that they think might help me in my journey towards freedom. Um, Such as, they say you're never more than six feet away from a rat, which is great to know when you have a phobia of them. Here's another fact that a friend sent me, which was really encouraging to read, that rats multiply so quickly that in 18 months, two rats could have over a million descendants. That's a terrifying thought. Um, Here's another article. This is getting pretty dark right now. Someone sent me that there was a nest of giant rats discovered who were growing huge through cannibalism. Um, And and that's, I'll just leave it on the screen for a while. Um, No, I'll get rid of it because that is harrowing. Um, So I have a phobia of rats and we can joke about it now, but in my teenage years, I wasn't laughing. Um, I had a certain practice before bed and I'm not exaggerating. Every night I would go around my room with a baseball bat, right? I would look under the bed. I would look in every single cupboard. I, I would look around the entire room, and when I was convinced there was no rodent activity, then I would close the door, I would put the baseball bat down the side of the bed in case I needed it, you know, during the night. I would then sort of like cover myself, wrap my duvet around myself so that there were no entry points. The only bit of exposed flesh was my face, and yes, that was a cause for concern. Um, And then I would fall asleep, right? And, and, And that became a sort of regular practice for me. Um, at university, when I was in rundown accommodation um, in Nottingham, where there was actually rodent activity, during my finals, I could hear them in the, in the roof. Um, it affected sleep. I wasn't sleeping very well. I was anxious anyway about finals, and, and the rodent activity didn't help. So, like, this was something that, like, was a, a real block to my peace and well-being, right? Now... There's some incredible tools out there where you, when you, if you struggle with phobias. I'm going to name one of them. 
um, which is cognitive behavioural therapy. Some of you will be familiar with cognitive behavioural therapy. Now, this is a tool developed by Albert Ellis, who is the, the intellectual father figure of the rational emotive behavioural therapy movement. He came up with something called the ABC of CBT, the ABC of cognitive behavioural therapy. He basically says, if you want to understand a phobia, you need to recognise that there's an activating event it begins through an event, and then there will be corresponding beliefs that flow from that event, and then there will be consequences in your behavior. So in my story, what was the activating event? Well, when I was five or six years old, I had a hamster. I went to bed one night, and at about two in the morning, I woke up and felt this scratching sensation on my bare chest, right? So I, I, I look at what I think is a rat with those black eyes staring at me. I whack this thing off my chest. I turn on the light. I realize it's not a rat. It's my hamster, Hobby, but I am livid. I pick up Hobby. I put it back in the cage where it had escaped from. I lock it in, and over the next two days, I starve it to death. That's a joke, by the way. I didn't do that. I didn't do that. I promise you. I promise you. Before the Lord, that didn't happen. I just, I love the drama of that moment. Like, <gasps> I think it would have helped had I done that in my healing journey, but I didn't do that. But me and Hobby, you know, the relationship really came to an end in that moment. But that was an activating event, right? It created some irrational beliefs. The rodents know that I'm afraid of them and they smell fear. Um, and they're attracted towards those that fear them. Um, and in the night, I'm not safe. Now, we can joke about this. When, when you struggle with irrational beliefs, you know they're irrational. You don't need someone to say, oh, that's irrational. You're like, I, I know it's irrational. And yet I can't seem to overcome it, right? And these irrational beliefs begin to drive your behavior. Um, the gift of CBT, this is the remedy according to CBT. You need a therapist that you go through and you intentionally deconstruct these irrational beliefs. So you talk it out. Like what harm could a rat actually do? Like putting the sort of black death, the plague that took millions of lives, like putting that to one side, like what harm could a rat actually do? And the answer is like not much. And how much bigger am I than a rat? Like 40 or 50 times bigger. And how much more is the rat afraid of me than I'm of it? And, and you begin to replace irrational beliefs with rational ones. And slowly, incrementally, it transforms your behavior. Now, CBT is a gift. There's some tools out there that are an incredible gift. But can I just say, it isn't the gospel, right? It is the gospel that has power to save. It is the blood of Jesus that has power to deliver us, to set us free and move us into the kingdom of light. Like this is the good news of the gospel. God basically doesn't come as a divine therapist to say, look, let's just have a little conversation about these irrational beliefs. So I'm gonna just you know, throw some ideas of new rational beliefs that might help you on your journey. God doesn't act like that. What he does is he provides a new activating event. It's not just a conversation where irrational beliefs are deconstructed. There's a new activating event. God takes on human flesh and enters the mess and the chaos. We're going to celebrate this in the Christmas story, the incarnation. Incarnate, Greek word meaning in flesh. Chili con carne, chili in flesh, in meat. God con carne, God in human flesh. 
He enters the mess with us and he lives for us and he dies for us, overcoming death, overcoming darkness, overcoming our sin and rises to new life and pours out his spirit. And because his spirit dwells within us, resurrection life is coursing through your veins right now. This is a new activating event. It's not just the story of Jesus. It's your story because you are in Christ. And when this becomes the ground beneath your feet, your new foundation, you realize, wow, in Christ, I'm a new creation. Like resurrection life is coursing through my veins. I'm a son. I'm a daughter. I'm not an orphan anymore. Like he's delivered me. If the sun sets you free, you're not partly free. You are free indeed. And he loves me unconditionally. And he has a plan for my life, not a plan to harm me, but to give me hope and a future. He wants to use me in his purposes to make all things new. And these new beliefs that are an overflow from this activating event, They transform your behavior as you partner with the Spirit. It's called sanctification. We open up the windows and we let the light in and we're transformed from the inside out. It is the blood of Jesus that has the power to set you free. There is no prison door that the blood of Jesus can't break open. There is no addiction too great that the blood of Jesus can't set you free from right? This is the power of the blood of Jesus. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for the salvation, the deliverance of everyone who believes. So freedom, deliverance starts with the blood of Jesus. Let's talk about sweat because we participate in this journey, this work of the Spirit. We participate in this through spiritual practices. So if you look at the the screen, you'll, you'll notice the cross, These spiritual practices, they don't get you free. Some of you, this could save you a little bit of pain. If you think, oh, these practices will liberate me. If I can just nail Sabbath, and if I can just nail dot, 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 then I'll be free. No, it's the blood of Jesus that liberates you, right? And that is gift. It's grace. It's like the Red Sea moment. The nation of Israel standing, there's a mass of ocean in front of them. The Egyptian army, like bearing down on them, it is an act of God that liberates them, right? It isn't practices, like memorizing scripture. I mean, doing these things, please see part. No, God does it, liberates them, brings them to a place of freedom. And in the wilderness, this journey of sanctification, they develop practices. This is where they're given the law. This is helping them use their freedom to become the people they were created by God to be so that they could inhabit this land that they were promised. So the practices don't get you free. The blood of Jesus sets you free. So when we're praying for freedom for people, we pray in the name of Jesus through the blood of Jesus. But then these spiritual practices are a gift to us to help us become Christ-like take on the nature of Christ. So for example, if envy has dominated, we pray that the blood of Jesus would set us free and then we begin to practice encouragement so that we can become kind and it is second nature to us to be kind, right? So so this is a transformation from a habit where you're on your phone, we all know what this is like, on social media and just envy stirs in your heart as you see your friend from your childhood years marry their childhood sweetheart. You're still single and you're like, I'm so happy for them. 
yippee for them, like I hate you. You know, yeah? Your uni mate landed their dream job and your job sucks, like this sucks, right? And envy just grows in your heart. Well, the blood of Jesus can set you free from that, not your hard work and endeavor. The blood of Jesus is the power to set you free. And with that freedom, you're like, I'm gonna choose a different practice. I'm gonna encourage people. I'm going to invest my time in just speaking well of others and putting courage in their hearts. And over time, if you practice, 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 these things become second nature and you can't help but be kind. That's the character of Christ growing within you. Rather than wrath and judgmentalism where you just read about what's happening in the world and just judge, 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 you learn the practice of forgiveness and you become long-suffering, patient. Rather than slothfulness, like numbness, a settled state of despair, you become diligent in prayer and you become attentive to the things of the Spirit. Rather than greed, more, 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 like you practice generosity and it becomes second nature to you to be generous, like to give away. Rather than gluttony and lust, you say no using your body as a vehicle, a training ground through fasting, and you develop self-control. When you start fasting, you're learning to wrestle with the flesh and say no to your hunger. Just because it exists doesn't mean I have to satisfy it. Now I say no. And you become a person of self-control. Rather than pride, you start serving and you develop humility. This is hard work. It's not the hard work that gets you free. Getting you free is grace, pure gift. But with this newfound freedom, we're like, Lord, I want to inhabit this space, this promised land well. I'm going to develop these practices. Let me close with this. The blood of Jesus, the sweat of human effort as we partner with what the Spirit's doing through practices, and then the tears of repentance. I want to talk about confession. Confession is how we open up the door to let the light come pouring in, right? It's the most incredible tool, the most incredible practice. And I want to land with a quote from Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer um, was hardcore. Some of his like, books, they're incredible, but when you read them, you're like, whoa, this guy is intense. And he really was intense. Um, and he was ministering at a time when the, the Nazi regime was advancing, and he wanted to create a community of light that would radiate the kingdom of God amidst the darkness. And he found that one of the key practices in this community, it was a community of men, hence the language in this quote, um, is, is all about the brothers. Um, but the key practice was confession, where they just like open up the door so that the light of Jesus could come pouring in. This is what he says. He says, confession in the presence of a brother is the profoundest kind of humiliation. He doesn't water this down, by the way. He just says it as it is. It hurts it cuts a man down. It's a dreadful blow to the pride. To stand there before a brother as a sinner is an ignominy that's almost unbearable. In the confession of concrete sins, just notice that. It wasn't sort of generalizations. Could you pray him struggling with lust? Let's just keep it general. No, he's like, it needs to be concrete. I did X. I went to this website, which led me to do this. It's like, you're really concrete. You say it as it is, right? This is pretty intense, but it brought life to the community. In the confession of concrete sins, the old man dies a shameful, a painful death before the eyes of a brother. 
Now, praise God, the quote doesn't end there, right? There is something beyond the death. Praise God. So let's keep reading. He says, in the deep mental and physical pain of humiliation. Again, he's like pretty dramatic. Before a brother, which means before God. And here's the good news. We experience the cross of Jesus as our rescue and salvation. The old man dies, but it is God who has conquered him. And now we share in the resurrection of Christ and eternal life. This is the power of confession. When we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And when we embrace this death to self, we kick open this door and the light of heaven breaks in. That's where we experience resurrection life. This is a moment for the church, honestly, to partner with what the Spirit's doing. He's opening up the windows to let the light in. Purity of heart creates clarity of sight. And if your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light, radiating light in the darkness, shining like stars in the universe. Should we stand?